some of us may remember a programme that was quite popular for a number of years. Indeed, it had a kind of return, I believe, a few years ago, a programme titled Through the Keyhole, where various um, celebrities uh, and a panel made up of celebrities um, would offer up their homes for investigation. And the job of the panellists was to try to discover and try to work out from what they saw in people's homes which home was connected to which celebrity. And so, in a sense, they were looking through the keyhole. They were given a guided tour. And when you think about it, this was before all the modern advances. When it started back in the 1990s, it was before all the modern advances in technology, which allowed virtual travel to be now almost part and parcel of being able to view things. You can have a, a tour of your home that you're hoping to buy, or a tour of a vehicle, or something else virtually, online. And so you can see, and you could see people's furniture and the things that they had and their ornaments and the layout of their garden, a whole host of other things, including, I believe, some quite personal things, in order that the panellists could work out who actually owned that home through the keyhole. Well, this morning, in a sense, we are seeing a version of that program played out for us. Um, I encouraged you a couple of weeks ago to read a section of the book of Ezekiel, uh, and we are working way through it, although actually we're working back. Um, last week, we looked in chapter 13 of that section of how false prophets were condemned, and I hope, anyway, we saw, and I'm glad I did get some feedback suggested you did see, the connection between the false prophets of the Old Testament times, those who told Judah, the kingdom of Judah, that everything would be fine, that this was simply a blip in the history of the country that God hadn't forsaken his people, that exile wouldn't happen, that Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar would return. Those false prophets who said these things, some motivated by genuine concern and grief and sorrow, some motivated because they lighted the limelight of being a prophet in the, temp in the court of the king, and some motivated by political and geopolitical interests. Whoever they are, whatever they did, whatever they said... Ezekiel, along with other prophets, particularly the prophet Jeremiah, were to challenge that. And we saw by using a prayer that had been sent on to me recently, how even today that spirit of, of falsehood, unfortunately, is seen even within what would be known as evangelical Christianity. That distortion, that emphasis on self, that offer of promises that actually contradict what the whole counsel of God says about God, about his purposes, and about his dealings with men. Done for good reasons, perhaps, but nonetheless fatal in the impact they have. And by the time we've finished, over the next few Sundays, the time we've finished looking at this section of God's word, I hope you'll see how serious and how damaging false prophecies are. And that will hopefully become clear as we finish this section. However, that wasn't the only problem. So if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 8. Last Sunday, Gregor quite rightly said, it seems a bit odd that you're working your way back. But again, hopefully, by the time we finish this little series, you'll see why we're doing that. And so, yes, there was the issue of the false prophets. But if that was bad enough, then we're going to see this morning that there were things that were even worse going on as Ezekiel was taken on a virtual tour of the temple and as he saw through the keyhole into things that were hidden or certainly not widely known about or certainly not publicized. And we're going to see that as God revealed these things to Ezekiel, the question had to be raised and asked, 
Who is the owner of the temple? Who is the tenant? Who is the person who lives in this house? The house of God. Is it Yahweh or is it other things? So let's turn to God's word. And we're reading from Ezekiel chapter 8. We're simply going to read through it as, as we explain it. If you did read it earlier on yourselves, you may well and understandably so have read it and thought, flip, what's all that about? How we need the help of the Holy Spirit to be able to understand and discern what it is about. Let's hear God's word. Ezekiel chapter 8 and verse 1. In the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day, while I was sitting in my house and the elders of Judah were sitting before me, the hand of the sovereign Lord came on me there. I looked and I saw a figure like that of a man. From what appeared to be his waist down, he was like fire, and from there he has, and from there up, his appearance was as bright as glowing metal. He stretched out what looked like a hand and took me by the hair of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and in visions of God, he took me to Jerusalem to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And there before me was the glory of the God of Israel as in the vision I had seen in the plain. And so here we have Ezekiel sitting in his own home. Here we have Ezekiel with the elders round about him. No doubt these elders were there partly because as we seen if you've read the story um, Ezekiel had already acted out in very visual ways some quite provoking and challenging messages and I say as we work back in this section we'll see what that is next Sunday and so there was a discussion interesting the elders were before him that suggests that although Ezekiel was only a young man 30 a time when he'd been starting out if he'd been back in Jerusalem on his priestly career nonetheless for Ezekiel, the authority of God was upon him. And although he was surrounded by the elders of Judah, they were before him, meaning they were there to listen and to hear and to receive from God what God was saying and showing through his servant, the prophet Ezekiel. And that's an important thing to remember, that as we come before God and before God's word, we are all minister and member to sit under God's word and allow the spirit of God the same spirit we're told that lifted Ezekiel up between earth and heaven and in visions of God took him to Jerusalem the same spirit of God is the same spirit that comes this morning and ministers through God's word and enables us to see things which humanly speaking we wouldn't see to understand things which with human wisdom we would not understand. To encounter things which, humanly speaking, we would not be able to encounter. Paul, remember writing to the church in Corinth, reminded the church that, that the wisdom of the world is nonsense before the wisdom of God. That we speak in spiritual language, using spiritual language or spiritual things which only those who have the Spirit can understand and discern and enter into. It's a supernatural event every time we gather together or individually come before God and come before His Word. And we can do that in our own homes or we can do that in Zoom or God willing we can do that soon in some kind of way here within this house of God. 
and Ezekiel is taken. He's taken, as long before the technology allowed this, long before that, he's taken on this virtual tour of the temple. Who is the one who takes him? Well, he sees a figure like that of a man. And that reference, of course, reminds us of what he saw at the beginning of the book of Ezekiel, what we spent some time looking at a couple of weeks ago. That vision of Jesus that appears in the book of Revelation. That one of glory and majesty that Daniel saw. The one that looked like a son of man. Jesus, the Lord of hosts, takes him on that tour. And as he goes to the temple, he sees before him the glory of the God of Israel. And as I say, we shall see the significance of that later on. But he also sees something which immediately catches that attention. Quite specifically, so it's amazing how quite specific. It's a specific year, and a specific month, a specific day. And when the Spirit lifts him up, there's quite a specific thing that he sees. He sees, we read in verse 3, where the idol that provokes to jealousy stood. And indeed in verse 5 we see, we his, He said to me, the Lord of hosts said to him, Son of man, look towards the north. And so I looked, and in the entrance north of the gate of the altar, I saw this idol of jealousy. Just a little point there. One of the signs that God is speaking, and that God has a word for us, is that actually it does speak into and relates to quite specific things. False prophecy even if it's well-intentioned. False prophecy is vague, is general. It makes claims or statements or wide accredited ideas of what may or may not happen. But the Lord, when he speaks, especially when he's speaking to speak into his people's lives and into the situations they face, is quite specific. And it's quite specific here. He sees an idol. What is that idol? Well, you'll really need to go in a study of the book of Kings, and so I commend that to you in your own leisure time later on in this Lord's Day, in the story of King Manasseh, who did evil, that which was evil in the sight of the Lord. And under King Manasseh's reign, he opened up, we often hear of society opening up to things. Well, he opened up Judah to the various influences of the various foreign gods and the foreign nations round about. He probably saw that as a way of securing his own political position. Judah was only a little small nation. How are we going to keep everybody happy, these bigger nations round about? Well, one of the ways is we could become a multicultural, multi-faith society. And that's what Manasseh sought to do. And one of the signs of that was that this basically a totem pole, that's the only word I could use to describe that you would understand what I mean, this totem pole was set up outside the temple door. We're told quite specifically at the entrance of the north gate of the inner court. So as you went into the temple and went into the inner court to begin your worship of God, you would see this totem pole set up. And scholars and those who are aware, are aware of these things tell us that usually this Asherah pole, and this is probably what it was, was dedicated to the, to the goddess who was the consort to El, the god El, i.e. to a god, small g, a god. And this god El and this consort Asherah were married and had a child, and that child was the god Baal. You remember Baal and the prophets at the time of Elijah. 
And so it was a nature god. It was a worshipping of a fertility. And obviously, as a, as a female figure, obviously all the, the sexual connotations of that and the fertility connotations of that were connected to this Asherah pole. Her title, we had a number of titles, one of her titles was Queen of Heaven. Some of us might recognize that title as certainly the past, having the, the Virgin Mary being referred to as the Queen of Heaven. And that certainly was a title that was used. And various fertility rites and sexual excesses were provided in order to keep this goddess happy so that she would intercede with her son, Baal, to ensure that there was a good harvest. Can you never see why the reformers in the 16th century saw the connection between this and some of the practices of the church in the pre-Reformation time. An interceder, a woman, a queen of heaven, who would intercede with the sun to ensure that there was a fruitful harvest. And you see the reaction. The reaction is, verse 6, the voice of the Lord of hosts says to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? Utterly detestable things that Israelites are doing here. Things that will drive me far from my sanctuary. We're told that this idol provoked God to jealousy. And certainly in the Old Testament, when that word is used, that word we often think, and understandably so, jealousy as being something wrong. When we as mere humans are jealous of someone else, we, we are wanting what they have, and basically we're wanting to dominate and to take over and to take from someone else. And we're jealous if we can't do that, and it stirs up negative emotions. But in the Old Testament, and indeed the God of the Old Testament is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the same God that we worship this morning. Let's not forget that or fall into the trap of thinking it's a different God. That same God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is a jealous God. He has burned anger, his, his anger burns against anything that deceives or distracts or takes away the worship of him. For he alone is not El, but he is Yahweh, El Shaddai. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who spoke and brought everything into being. The one who is the Lord of hosts. The one who is the father of creation. The one who is sovereign over all. And anything or anyone that distracts from the worship of him provokes his wrath. That's why Paul tells us that by nature we are subject to his wrath. For by nature, human beings do not worship him, but worship created things rather than the creator. And so he sees this pole, this Asherah pole. Uh, but then he's told as we move on, verse 6, um, will these things not drive me far from a sanctuary? But he says, the Lord of hosts says, you will see things that are even more detestable. In a sense, he's getting further and further into the actual building of the temple. Then he brought me to the entrance to the court. And I looked and saw a hole in the wall. He said to me, son of man, now dig into the wall. So I dug into the wall and saw a doorway there. And he said to me, go in and see the wicked detestable things that they are doing here. So I went in and looked. I saw portrayed all over the walls all kinds of crawling things, unclean animals and all the idols of Israel. 
In front of them stood 70 elders of Israel, and Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing among them. And each had a censer in his hand, and a fragrant cloud of incense was rising. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of Israel are doing in the darkness, each at the shrine of his own idol? They say, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And again he said, You will see them doing things that are even more detestable. The last holiday that we all went as a family with Gregor, Colin and ourselves was way back, way back 2012, and it was a holiday to Egypt. I'm so thankful, as I often remark, of how thankful we were we took that opportunity. It was just falling on from the Arab Spring. Um, there wasn't a great amount of tourists going to Egypt. Prices dropped. Um, I still remember getting the warm welcome at the airport, um, and then we walked over a number of boats before we got onto the cruise boat that was going up the River Nile. It was probably, in one sense, the most amazing amazing holiday, perhaps certainly as a family, perhaps we ever had. I remember opening the curtain in the morning, looking out, and we looked out, and there was a wee man and a donkey pulling a, a wooden cart, and you could have been back in the Bible times with the bulrushes and everything else, and going to see some of the great temples and the ruins of the great temples of Egypt, the great temples of Karnak, the Valley of the Kings, and other places. Massive places. And going into some of the temples, especially the temple at Karnak, and seeing, as I've mentioned before, seeing even up in the very corners some of the paint that was still on the cornicing of these places of worship, of seeing their version of the Holy of Holies, where obviously in a modern setting they had provided this. It certainly wasn't a golden calf from the times of the pharaohs, but nonetheless they put a golden a calf, not a golden calf, but a calf in the center, reminding us that the worship of created things, of the bull was at the heart of Egypt's worship, going down the Valley of the Kings into seeing some of the, the, the tombs and seeing the hieroglyphics and the paintings and the drawings of various animals, of various crawling things, and of animals that, according to the book of Leviticus, are unclean. And seeing these things, they were a focus of worship for the Egyptians. And what Ezekiel is seeing here through literally a hole in the wall, which has to be made a bit bigger so you can see better. He even goes down to that so you can get a better look out to see who's there. Imagine his head sticking through the hall, hole and have a good look around to see who's there. He sees all these symbols, probably in little alcoves, these symbols of Egypt's deification of creatures. And we're told that there were elders present and that there were people in these little alcoves worshipping. Now, it may well be when it says the elders of Israel, they're talking here not about the spiritual elders of Israel, but actually the political elders of Israel. I have mentioned, you maybe got it in passing in the past, that one of the issues that was going on in Judah was that they had tried to use an alliance with Egypt in order to fight off the Babylonians. The Babylonians had given a bloody nose to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians had retreated. And the ruler, especially the puppet king who was in Judah, Zedekiah, probably realized that unless he got the Egyptians on his side, he would never be able to resist the power of Nebuchadnezzar or of Babylon, especially if he was going to rebel against them. We will see in a couple of weeks' time. That, of course, is what he did with disastrous consequences. 
And so what Ezekiel is saying here is people were worshipping Egyptian gods, trying to get their support. That indeed is the context. The elders say, the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. Again, he said, you will see them doing things that are even more detestable. Well, what's the point? God's given up on us. We might as well try something else. And even worse, we're told that there was a man called Jazaniah, son of Shaphan, was standing there. And again, you need to go back to the Old Testament, to the second book of Kings. Shaphan was actually one of those who'd been involved with Jeremiah and with Josiah, King Josiah, in the renewal of the worship of God. Josiah came to the throne, second Kings tells us that. He saw many of the things that Manasseh had done. He burnt them. He rediscovered the book of the law, God's word. He read it. He was stirred by it. And Shaphan and others were involved with him in removing from Judah many of the symbols, the Shearer pools and other things, of these pagan gods and restoring. And for this season, there was a time of revival and renewal. Only for a season. The end of 2 Kings 22, God makes it clear that this is only for a season and the long-term story has already been written and will come to pass. But interesting enough, it's one of his sons who's in the midst of all of this. You see, beneath the veneer of religious respectability, beneath the veneer of seeming orthodoxy, of actually seeming to be a lover of the book, and of a family that were committed to upholding the true faith of Israel, even behind that, God knows our hearts. He sees not in the outward appearance, but upon our hearts. We might mouth the words, but what is the song we're singing in our souls? And God's wrath is stirred by that. And then moving on, verse 14. He brought me to the entrance of the north gate of the house of the Lord, and I saw a woman sitting there mourning the god Tammuz. He said to me, do you see this, son of man? You will see things that are even more detestable than this. This is probably now in the main forecourts of the temple. Tammuz was a Babylonian god. The cult of the dead were connected to it. The story again is of how this God, this deity had been born and he was beautiful. The connection in the Greek Roman world of Adonis, the god Adonis and the beautiful figure of a man, but of how he died and the desire that this dead deity would come alive and would somehow impact and transform the situation of the living and the present. Again, seeking to control nature through sympathetic magic and mourning rituals. And how easily we can fall into the same sin of deifying the dead. Remember Diana, Princess of Wales? I'm on a WhatsApp group with other ministers. And some of the situations over this past 10 months, 11 months, deification of the dead I won't name names because I'm conscious I'm live streaming on WhatsApp and, or, or rather on YouTube but I'll leave for you to think that through and we do that because perhaps we have a rightful respect for some because they were a good person everything else or perhaps, perhaps because we project onto that screen of a dead person our longings for what we should be like or what our society should be like 
and, and we make that the focus of our worship, somehow thinking that by doing that, we will bring to pass the things we desire or long for. And moving on. Verse 16, he then brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And there at the entrance to the temple between the portico and the altar were about 25 men. And with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces towards the east, they were bowing down to the sun in the east. Now this could remind us, hopefully will remind us, of Baal, the worship of Baal again, and of Elijah and the prophets. Remember, they were wanting fire from heaven to set fire to, to the, the, the offerings that were placed. And remember, the prophets of Baal cut themselves and danced and did all sorts of other things in order to invoke this sun deity or this nature deity to bring forth fire. And of course, they couldn't do it. Worshipping of the sun is expressly forbidden in the book of Deuteronomy. But worshipping of the sun was a central deity in the public life and private rituals of Babylon. And so for people in the courts of the temple to do that, to turn their back literally on the Holy of Holies, and to turn their back and face east, and to bow down to the sun, was the ultimate, in many ways, sign of idolatry. And even worse, when we read that they were bound down to the sun in the east, well, basically in the Hebrew, if I was to get up just now, take off my jacket, and drop my trousers, and bow down there, and you saw my backside, that's what these people were doing. That's what these people were doing. You rightly would be offended. It'd probably be taken off YouTube if I did that. And that's what these people were doing. They were turning their backsides to God. And he said to me, have you seen this, son of man? Is it a trivial matter for the people of Judah to do the detestable things they are doing here? Must they also fill the land with violence and continually arouse my anger? You see, my friends, when true faith is diminished, when the church's calling to be salt and light in society is lost, and that includes the evangelical church, loses that salt and light within a society, then the impact on society as a whole is disastrous. Many of the great ethical and moral issues which have come to the surface, which were already there, but which have come to the surface during this time of COVID and which will become played out in the public and moral domain over these coming years, much of that can be accredited to the church's failure to have a clear voice on areas to do with human sexuality and so forth. Again, we'll touch upon that over the next couple of weeks. And then, he says, look at them putting the branch to their nose. Now, again, there's discussion of what that might mean. It may be that they're using some thing, pagan thing, from one of the rituals of Egypt or Babylon and waving that about. One or two scholars, actually, what they think was basically what they were doing was giving God the finger. Again, if I was to do that this morning, well, you might be tempted to switch off. And rightly so. Therefore, he says, I will deal with them in anger. 
I will not look on them with pity or spare them. Although they shout in my ears, I will not listen to them. You see, my friends, one of the things that was seriously wrong with that prayer, or indeed with what was said a year ago at that Pray for Scotland meeting, where there was promises of revival, was that there was very little reference to repentance. There was very little acknowledgement of idolatry amongst God's people. Notice that God's anger burns to his people. He, he is sorrowful. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He is sorrowful for our world and for its waywardness. And he knows that they will have to give an account. But judgment does first begin with the house of the Lord, with his people, with the church. And the dictionary defines idolatry as the worship of an image held to be an abode of a superhuman personality. Well, we've already made reference of how we can do that, elevate someone or something and make that the focus of our love and attention above everything else. Project onto someone else our own ultimate insecurities and inadequacies and how they can be resolved, and we can become the superwoman. As I said before, I'm afraid to say, brothers and sisters, there's not really, if you think you're a little prince or a little princess, you're going to be sadly disappointed before the Prince of Peace and the Lord of Hosts and the King of Glory. But it also is not just an image. It's a fallacy. I'm quoting here from the dictionary. An idea or concept of the brain or philosophy by which we're led into error or prejudice which prevents true observation. Let me read that again. It's a fallacy. It's an idea or notion of the brain, of our psyche, or philosophy by which we're led into the error or prejudice, which led into error or prejudice which prevents true observation we see everything distorted not through the lens of God's word and the glory of his majesty what did Ezekiel see the glory of God of Israel but we see it through the lens of self or of what someone else or some philosophy tells us should be the lens that we have to see and my friends that form of idolatry is rife within the church of God in Britain today. And next Sunday, we'll see the consequences of that. So how we need to worship God, and we're going to do that together now. Let's pray together. Majesty, Worship his majesty, and to Jesus be glory, honor, and praise. How we thank you, O God, our Father, that there is a man in heaven. That we don't need to pray to the Virgin Mary or to any of the saints. That there is one in heaven, as the book of Hebrews tells us, our great high priest who lives to intercede for us. We have that access, and by faith we come. A faith based not on ourselves, but upon what that Jesus Christ has done. The one in whom all authority flows from. And we remember that 
we are all temples. Temples of the Holy Spirit. That, Lord, this setting of the temple in Jerusalem was a, a physical place, but Ezekiel saw supernatural and spiritual things, saw inside through the keyhole. And of how the owner of that temple, the Lord of hosts, God himself, was grieved by what happened. And so, Lord, we in humility say, Lord, we are sorry, deeply sorry, that we do not worship the Lord our God with our heart, with whole heart, and with our love, our whole love. And with our strength, our whole strength, and with our might, our whole might, we break that first commandment. And then we break the next one because we have other gods apart from you. Oh, they may be very presentable, Lord, and that's why they're so tempting and so they have such influence over us. It might be someone, it might be something, it might be our own safety and security, it might be our own wealth and prosperity, it might be this idea or that philosophy, this notion of the brain or of the mind. But Lord, as your word is brought to us and as the light of the truth of your word shines within us, it reveals just how, at best, a fallacy and at worst, a downright deception they are. And so we say sorry. We humble ourselves before you, the Lord of hosts, the King of glory, the great I am. Yahweh, Jehovah, for there is none like you. And as we ask for your forgiveness, we pray for the quickening work of your spirit, the same spirit that took Ezekiel on that journey that day to see through things. We ask, O Holy Spirit, for your renewing and transforming grace and power. And so for a minute of quietness, we gather, sitting in our own rooms or homes or wherever we are. Perhaps through your word, O God, you've challenged Perhaps something particular has come to mind, something we need to renounce, some totem pole that we need to remove, some secret ritual of which we're a part that we need to turn away from, some attitude of mind and heart that we need to repent from. And so by your spirit, for this minute of quietness, come and minister amongst us, we pray. For we long to be not just a church building that's filled with your spirit, although we thank you for your presence here. Even this morning, there's only three of us here. Lord, we can sense it. But far more importantly, you want us as a people of God to be your body, Lord Jesus, here to bring you glory. And so we say sorry. We, we come to you openly and honestly. And for this minute of quietness, minister deep within our souls, we pray.
and to close these final words from the book of Jude, where Jude calls upon God and God's people to be merciful to those who doubt, to save others by snatching them from the fire, to others show mercy mixed with reverent fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted and idolatrous flesh. And now to him who is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now, and forevermore. And the people of God said, Amen.